0: I'd like to draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in the 26th psalm. Psalm 26. I'll be reading this psalm for us in its entirety. But before I do so, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that this is the word of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who created us. The one who sustains us, and the one who in his love and grace and mercy has redeemed us. So let us receive this word from his hand. Psalm 26 of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord. And try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence. And I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge together that your word is forever fixed in the heavens. And we rejoice in knowing that your faithfulness endures to all generations. And so we ask now that your law, your word would be our delight and that we would never forget your precepts. For by them and by your spirit, you have graciously given us life. Lord, we confess that we are yours, and so we pray that you would save us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And I know that in our day and age... We have a really hard time believing those words, don't we? Because you don't feel blessed. You don't feel like rejoicing when you're persecuted and reviled and falsehoods are spoken of you with evil intent on account of Christ, do you? And yet that's what our Lord very clearly says here. And since we are his people, we will experience this. But here's the question that I want us to answer. Other than rejoicing and considering ourselves blessed, how are we to respond when our enemies in particular speak falsehoods about us, spread evil lies about us and our character on behalf of Christ? And I'm so thankful for Psalm 26 because it answers that question. Because here is David being accused by his enemies falsely, and he turns to the Lord in prayer. That's how we're to respond. We are to pray to the Lord when we're falsely accused on his account. And we're to give voice, as David does here, to four realities in prayer. Four realities. First of all, we'll see that we are to give voice to our plea. We'll see that in verses 1 through 3. We are to appeal not to the courts of men but to the courts of God Almighty Himself who is the just judge of all mankind. Second of all, we'll see that we are to give voice to our purity. We'll see that in verses 4 and 5. We are to come before the judge of all and say, Lord, I am innocent. I am not guilty of that which they charge against me. Instead, I walk in your ways. Thirdly, We're to give voice to our place. I know that sounds weird. Come on, did you take the alliteration too far? Our place. What I mean by that is that we let the Lord know where we belong. We don't belong in the assembly of the wicked. We don't belong walking in their ways. That's not where we're at home. No, our place is with the Lord and where his glory dwells, worshiping him with his people. We'll see that in verses 6 through 8. And then fourthly, We'll see how we are to give voice to our persuasion. We'll see that in verses 9 through 12, that we are persuaded that God will cut down our enemies if they don't repent, those who wrongly accuse us. But we're also persuaded that we will continue, by God's grace, to persevere and endure until the end. And brothers and sisters, we desperately need to learn from this psalm. Because I don't know where you are in your Christian walk, but we are all, if we are living as we should, going to be falsely accused on account of Christ. And so we need to know how to respond, and this psalm helps us. So let's look first then at how we are to give voice to our plea. Look at the superscript there of David. So who wrote this psalm? King David. David, the one who was graciously saved by God and appointed to be Israel's king. And because he represents God on earth, David, if you know anything about his life, had his fair share of enemies, didn't he? And he had his fair share of false accusations that were lodged against him. And so as these false accusations are coming, to whom does David turn? He turns and makes his plea, builds his case before the Lord. He cries out to the one whom he knows is the judge of all. Because David knows the character of the Lord. And we know that because David's in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Look at verse 1 there. Vindicate me, O Lord. That title that David ascribes to the Lord there, capital L-O-R-D, is the covenant name, Yahweh, that God revealed to his people back in Exodus chapter 3. And David's saying, I'm in a covenant relationship with you, Lord. You've revealed to me in your word your character. And I know that you are just and you are the judge of all mankind. And so I present my case before you. Not in the courtrooms of men where justice is so often miscarried and injustice prevails. No, I make my plea known to you, the judge of all mankind. And so what does he cry out to him? He says, first of all, vindicate me. I'm being wrongly accused, Lord. So really, the Hebrew scholars here say that that phrase, vindicate me, can also be translated, judge me. Judge between me and those who falsely accuse me, O Lord. And show to all that I am innocent. Now, what confidence can David have that he is, in fact, innocent and therefore will be vindicated? Well, first of all, look at verse 1 again. He says, vindicate me, O Lord. Why? For I have walked in my integrity. David appeals to his innocence. He says, Lord, I've, I've not lived a disintegrated life before you where I live this way around these people and this way around another group of people and then this way amongst my family. No, he's saying, Lord, I live my life before your face. I live and walk in your ways wherever I am. And so I am innocent of this specific accusation that is being brought against me. Not only does he have confidence because of his innocence, but look at the very end of verse one. He also says, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. The only reason he's been able to walk in his integrity is because he's trusting in the Lord. He's looking to him, not for his own hand to save him, not for anybody else to clear his name, but the Lord alone. And so he says, first of all, as he pleads before the Lord, vindicate me. Second of all, he says, look at verse 2, examine me. Examine me. This is a part of his plea still. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Now again, because he knows the character of the Lord, he knows that the Lord knows everything. The Lord does not learn anything. The Lord knows all. And the hearts and intentions of all mankind are laid bare before the Lord. And so David's saying, Lord, lay my heart bare before you. Not that the Lord's going to learn something that he didn't already know about David, but it's a proof of his innocence. He's saying, examine me, search me, try me. And again, the Hebrew scholars say of that phrase there in the second half of verse 2, test my heart. That word test there is a metallurgical term. Metallurgy, it's those who deal with metals. And so what would happen in David's day and age is people would pull, let's say, gold out of the ground. And the metallurgist would take it and put it in a cauldron and raise the temperature over heat until that metal would melt. And then the metallurgist would stir that pot, stir that metal, and the impurities would rise to the top. The metallurgist would scrape that dross or that impurity off and he would have a more valuable, more strong metal. And David's saying, Lord, when it comes to this accusation, if you try me and test me, I I will be pure. I am innocent in my character in this regard. David's not saying that he's perfectly sinless, but he's saying in regards to this specific accusation, I am innocent, so examine me, Lord. And you will see that that is the case. The last third part of his plea that he makes before the Lord, this case that he presents, is, Lord, I trust you. He reiterates this again. Look at verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Again, who is David looking to to vindicate him? And so who is he directing his plea towards? His covenant-keeping God who has always been faithful to his people, who has always vindicated them. And so he says, because my eyes are fixed on you, I will continue to walk in integrity because I'm walking in light of your faithfulness, O Lord. Now the fascinating thing is when we take this psalm and we hear it in the mouth of Jesus, we see that it ultimately finds its fulfillment in his life and ministry. Why? Because what do we see Jesus, as soon as he enters into his public ministry, what do we see happening to him? We see him being falsely accused, don't we? Why? Because right out of the gate, right out of the gate, what claim is he making? I am the Son of God. I am one with the Father. And so what do his enemies charge him with? What do they bring against him? They say, no, you're not. That's blasphemy. Now, it would be blasphemy if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, but he is the Son of God, and so it's not blasphemy, rather it's the truth. And maybe the the climax of Jesus' enemies falsely accusing him can be found in a place like Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 59 through 60. Go look that up later. Matthew 26, 59 through 60. I won't even read it to you. But what are Jesus' enemies doing? They're actually bringing false witnesses into the courtroom as Jesus is before Caiaphas. And they're trying to, to create this false narrative against Jesus so that he'll be crucified. And it all just falls apart. And yet that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Even as David was accused, Jesus, David's greater son, was accused. And yet, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? We know from the gospel accounts that in his trial, he's like a lamb before those who are going to slaughter him. He's silent. He doesn't give them an answer. Instead, what does he do? Well, we're actually given an insight into what Jesus does in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 23. Let me read that for you. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 23. Peter says for this to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was innocent when he was reviled. He did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten. But how does Peter say that he responded? But Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Jesus do? He didn't revile when he was reviled. He didn't threaten when he was suffered. He didn't open up his mouth. He brought his plea before the Father, the one who judges justly, and left his case with him. And oh, was Jesus vindicated. When was he vindicated? On that glorious day, the third day when he rose From the grave. But, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Since we're in Christ, since we belong to Him, we will be wrongly accused. It's a reality that you have to get your head around. He promises this is a blessing that you will partake in. He's the master. The world hated Him. Don't think you're greater than the master. The world's going to hate the servant, too. And so, how are we to respond to these false accusations? When they're brought against us, we are to respond the same way David did and the same way our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. We are to entrust our case to the one who judges justly, not taking matters into our own hands. I'm not saying there aren't certain things that we can do, but where is our ultimate hope and rest to lie in the Lord and his judgment? And that he will vindicate us, if not in this life, then at the end of all things. So we've seen first how we are to give voice to our plea when we're wrongly accused. Second of all, let's see how we're to give voice to our purity. Our purity. Look at verse 4 with me. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. Now, what reality is David appealing to here? David's appealing to the reality clearly in Scripture that ever since the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3 ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ever since that day all human beings fall into one of two categories you are either now a seed of the woman those who are are saved by God's grace though you're a sinner in and of yourself He enters into a gracious covenant relationship with you, and then you walk in his ways, or you are a seed of the serpent, a seed of the devil, a child of wrath, an object of God's anger for your sin and rebellion against him. And here's what David's saying, Lord, by your grace and mercy, I am not a seed of the serpent, I am a seed of the woman. And because that's my identity, I don't walk in the ways of the seed of the serpent. I, I, don't, I don't spend my time, Lord, with liars. Look at the beginning of verse 4 again. I do not sit with men of falsehood. Do you hear the echo, by the way, back to Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. David's saying, I don't sit and take counsel and spend my time with those who build their lives upon lies. Why, Lord? Because I'm given to the truth. I'm given to the truth. And he says, I also don't spend my time, look at the second half of verse 4, consorting with hypocrites, nor do I consort with hypocrites. This is another manifestation of lying. Because what does the hypocrite do? The hypocrite's fully aware that they're one way, but then they take a mask and they put it on to fool you and other people so that you will trust them, so that they can have their way with you, take advantage of you, that you might look to them and respect them. They pretend to be one way, fully aware that they are another way entirely. And David says, Lord, part of my innocence, part of my purity is that I don't walk in these ways. I know I belong to you, not to this world. And so hear my argument here, hear the fact and see that I walk in purity. As a matter of fact, he not only walks in purity, but because he loves the Lord and he loves the Lord's ways, he also hates the ways of the seed of the serpent. He abhors and despises the assembly of the wicked. And here's the reality that our culture has a hard time getting their heads around. If you love one thing, you're going to hate its opposite. If you love that which is good, you are going to hate that which is evil. If you love the truth, you're going to hate the lie. If you love that which is beautiful, you're going to hate that which is ugly. And so that's what David is saying here. Look at verse 5. I hate the assembly of evildoers. And I will not sit with the wicked. Lord, I not only don't walk in their ways and spend time with them. He's not saying that he doesn't do business with them. He's not saying that he's not kind and loving to his neighbors, but he doesn't approve of their sin, nor does he walk in the ways of their sinfulness. Instead, what does he say? I hate their assembly. I despise it because I love you. This again is an echo of the second psalm. You remember the second psalm in verses 1 through 3. Let me read it to you. It says why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us the fallen mass of humanity shakes its fist against God in rebellion and says, we want to overthrow your rule and reign. We want to be a law unto ourselves and cast off and suppress your law that is written clearly on our consciences. We see that rampant in our culture today, don't we? Guess what? That's not anything new, brothers and sisters. That's been happening ever since the fall. And David says, I hate this assembly of the world and of the wicked. Now, here's the thing. David, as he gives voice to his purity in prayer before the Lord, can can claim innocence in regard to the specific accusation that's brought against him. But when we hear this psalm in the voice of Jesus, as he lives among us, what do we see? Not that Jesus is just innocent of any particular accusation. Jesus is innocent and pure of any accusation. Jesus is unstained by sin and sin. And evil. He alone. Which is exactly why the author of the book of Hebrews can say something like he does in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. Let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Who's our high priest? Jesus. And then they, he goes on to describe him. Holy. Innocent. Unstained. Separated from sinners. And exalted above the heavens. Jesus alone is completely pure and unstained by sin and evil. And not only that, because Jesus loved in his humanity that which was good. He also hated the assembly of evildoers. Didn't he? We see that in his life and ministry. You remember what he says to the the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, "You're, you're like a cup that's clean on the outside. You're hypocrites. The outside looks clean. Okay, I'll grab that cup and get a drink from it. But inside, it's got mold, it's putrid, it's disgusting. If you try to take a drink from it, you want to throw up. And Jesus says, clean the inside of the cup. And that's a rebuke against the religious leaders who are pretending to be one way, but in reality are another. That's why Jesus, there's a whole chapter in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 23 recorded where Jesus calls down these woes. These curses down on the religious leaders. He's hating the assembly of the wicked perfectly. And so brothers and sisters, since we are in Christ, this psalm is to find voice in our prayers and in our songs as well. Why? Because we are to be holy even as he is holy. That was true under the old old covenant. That's true in the new covenant. We are to be, In the world, yes, we have relationships with our neighbors and our co-workers. We love them. We're kind to them. We call them on their sin. We call them to repent, to walk away from their sins, and to follow Jesus. But we are not of the world's system, the way of thinking, the way of living. As a matter of fact, we hate the world and its ways, and we can't wait for Jesus to come and cast it down. And so that's why Paul can write something like he does in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Let me read this for you. Paul writes to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Those are the ways of the world. So don't grumble and dispute. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. That is our calling, brothers and sisters, because we're in Christ. We have been graciously saved. We are a part of the seed of the woman, and so we're to shine like lights in a dark place. And so may we pray, Lord, may we love what you love more and hate what you hate Why? So that we can give voice to our purity before you when we are falsely accused by our enemies. So we've seen how we're to give voice to our plea and to our purity. And thirdly, we're to give voice to our place when we're wrongly accused. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. David says, I wash my hands in innocence... And go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. What a contrast to verses 4 and 5, huh? David says, I don't belong with the assembly of the wicked. I hate their assembly. Instead, where does David belong? He belongs in the temple, worshiping the Lord, offering thanksgiving sacrifices. And David says, I can do that, Lord, with clean hands. I do that with a clear conscience in regard to the false accusation that they're bringing against me. Right? Isn't that what he says in verse 6? I wash my hands in innocence. You know what that makes me think of immediately? You remember when our Lord and Savior stood before Pilate? And you remember how the crowd is saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate's like, I don't find anything wrong with him. He's innocent. And so Pilate says, Well, maybe if I let him flog, if I have him flogged, then they'll be satiated, and then I can let him go. But the crowd still says, Crucify him. So what does Pilate do? There's a basin of water brought out, and he cleans his hands in the, in the water. And then what does he say? I am innocent of this man's blood. Remember what the crowd says? May his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children, having no idea what they're actually saying. But they would want the blood of God upon their hands and their heads and their children's hands and heads. But David is saying the same thing here. I'm innocent. I'm innocent of the charge that they brought against me, so there's nothing keeping me from coming and worshiping you, Lord, in a clear conscience, and so I will offer thanksgiving sacrifices on the altar. I'll proclaim thanksgiving aloud, all that you've done for me, all that you've done for your people throughout salvation history. And your gracious covenant with them, and I will tell of your wondrous deeds that you've done in my life, Lord, and that you've done in the past, because Lord, I know that in the future you will vindicate me yet again. David heightens this even more that he loves God's place in verse eight. look at verse eight, O oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Lord, I don't long to dwell where the wicked are I. Love the house of your habitation. What's the house of God's habitation? It's the tabernacle. And David's saying, "Why do I love it, Lord?" He doesn't say, it's because, you know, I really like the aesthetics of the tabernacle. It, it really matches with my aesthetic. And so I feel comfortable there. I, I'm drawn to that. That's not what he says. And he doesn't say, "You know, I really like the worship. That happens at the tabernacle. It really moves me emotionally. And I can really tell that the spirit is moving there because of how the the music emotionally manipulates me. That's not what he says. What does he say? Why do I love the habitation of the Lord? Because it's the place where your glory dwells. David loves the glory of God. He loves to behold it. He loves to worship the Lord and give him glory. And why is this so important to David? Because brothers and sisters, if we go all the way back to Genesis, we see that our ultimate problem is what? God created us to have fellowship and communion with him. That's what Adam and Eve had in the garden. And when they sinned, what happened? They were kicked out of the garden for their sin. Out of God's place where his glory dwells. And they were outside of God's blessing and his rule and his reign, if you will. And so what's so glorious then about a book like the book of Exodus? What's glorious about the book of Exodus is that God goes to his people. He hears their cries as they are suffering under the slavery that their Egyptian captors have over them. And God delivers them. To what end? So that they can go and live their life however they want? No, that he might, they might go to the promised land. And that he might dwell with them. And that they might worship him. And so what's the climax of the book of Exodus? Moses builds the tabernacle exactly as the Lord tells him to. It's to be an earthly copy of the heavenly reality. And then at the very end of the chapter, the closing verses, what happens? Everybody is outside of the tabernacle. And the glory of God comes down and descends and fills the tabernacle. And no matter how many times I read it, it's like the hair on the back of my neck stands up with excitement. Behold, the glory of the Lord. He now graciously has condescended to dwell with his sinful people that they might worship him. And David's saying, Lord, that's why I love the place where your glory dwells. That's what I was created for. And so I love to worship you, not with the wicked. My communion is not with them. I do not seek the glory of men, David is saying. No, Lord, I seek your glory for you to be exalted in my life. And so I love to be in the tabernacle. I love to be with your people. I love to be worshiping you with them. And brothers and sisters, oh, how we see this fulfilled in Jesus's life and ministry, don't we? Even from the tenderest of ages. Do you remember when he's 12, what happens? Let me read this to you. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But I want to read from you from Luke's gospel account, chapter 2, verses 46 through 49. Luke 2, 46 through 49. Jesus is at the young age of 12, and his parents have taken him to Jerusalem. They've made the journey there to celebrate the feast of Passover, as is commanded in the Old Covenant. And as they're headed back home from being in Jerusalem... They travel for a day and realize, oh no, Jesus isn't with us. I wouldn't want to be one of Jesus' parents, by the way. That would be a really tough gig. So they forgot about him. They have to take another day to travel back. And then Luke records this. After three days, they found him in the temple. Jesus is 12 and without his parents for four days. They find him in the temple, and where is he? Sitting among the teachers. He's sitting among God's people in the temple, in God's place, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, right? What 12-year-old is just going to be hanging out at the temple? They could be doing all sorts of other things. And there he sits. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, why were you looking for me? I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Did you not know, he says, that I must be in my father's house? That can also be translated, I must be about my father's business. Same, Same idea. Where is the father's business taking place? The father's house. Jesus is loving being in the temple. Where God's glory dwells with his people, worshiping him, pouring over the scriptures. And we can imagine this went on into adulthood, right? Can you imagine Jesus walking through the temple, seeing the types and shadows in the sacrifices and the ceremonies of everything that he came to do in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension? But he loved it because he loved God's glory. But brothers and sisters, as if that weren't amazing enough, here's the incredible thing. Jesus is now God's place for us. Do you realize that? The point of the temple and the tabernacle was to point us to the reality, not that God would graciously dwell with us in tents made by human hands, but no, He would come, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and take humanity upon Himself, assume a human nature, and dwell with us Like one of us. Absolutely incredible. And here's the thing. What is the church called? The church is called the body of who? The body of Christ. So now where do we long to be? Fellowshiping with the brothers and the sisters. Isn't that what we see in the early chapters of Acts? Acts chapter 2 verse 42. What does the early church devote themselves? The apostles teaching about Jesus. And the breaking of bread, the sacraments, and set times of prayer where they commune with God. And brothers and sisters, since we are in Christ and we love the place where God's glory dwells, we will love to be with the body of Christ. It'll show up in regular attendance of corporate worship, encouraging each other in the word, longing to see where the baptismal waters flow and partaking of the ordinances that Jesus left us as the head of the church. And so here's the thing. I don't want to disconnect this from the rest of the sermon. This is to be part of our case before the Lord when we're wrongly accused. Lord, this is where I long to be. With your people where your glory dwells. Worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Not with the world. Not with the assembly of the wicked. It's another case as to his innocence. And so we see then. How we are to give voice to our plea and to our purity and to our place where we belong, our home. And fourthly, let's see how we are to give voice to our persuasion. Our persuasion. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. Do not sweep away my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. What is David persuaded of? He is absolutely confident that as God said he would, he will come and not only justly judge all mankind, but he will also execute justice on the lawbreakers, the covenant breakers, those who are bloodthirsty, those who rebel against him. He will rip their souls, sweep their souls away from them. He will take away their lives. God will come in judgment, the great day of the Lord. And all those who rebel against him will be cast into the fires of hell along with Satan, where they will justly suffer under his wrath unceasingly. And here's the thing, David takes comfort in that. David takes comfort that his accusers will be cut down in a moment and cast into the fires of hell. And David prays, Lord, may I not be thrown into the fires with them. Why? Because of everything that I've already said. I don't walk in their ways. I hate their assembly. But David is fully persuaded that God will crush the wicked. But he's not only persuaded of that, he's also persuaded that he will continue to walk in the ways of the Lord. Look at verse 11 with me. David says, Unlike the wicked, the wicked will continue to do what they do, Lord, until you cut them down or until they repent. But as for me, David says, I shall walk in my integrity. Now, if I stop reading right there, it sounds pretty arrogant of David, doesn't it? Really, David. You're just going to keep... Is David saying, I'm going to self-sustain sustain myself in my sanctification, in my pursuit of holiness, that, that Lord, I've got this, right? But why do we say that so much? In earth? You got this? Man, I don't got nothing without the Lord. I don't know why that's a comfort to anybody. But David's not saying, I've got this. I can sustain my own sanctification and keep faithfulness to your covenant. That's not what David's saying. How do we know that? Look at the rest of verse 11. Redeem me and be gracious to me. David's saying, I will continue to walk in covenant faithfulness not because I've got this, but because God's got me. He has redeemed me. He's justified me apart from any works of my own by grace alone, through faith alone, as he looks to the Messiah alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. But part of that redemption is then sanctification, isn't it? Where the Lord says, (laughs) to apply it in an old covenant context, The good work that I began in you, I will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6. uh, David saying, I have that assurance. I am persuaded that I will continue to walk in the ways of the Lord because this is an evidence of God's grace in my life. He makes that a little bit clearer in verse 12. He says, My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly I will bless the Lord. My foot stands on level ground. What does that make you think of? It makes me think of what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel account, right? He says, the foolish man does what? Builds his house upon the sand. It's not a firm foundation. And when the storm comes, what happens? The foundation, the sand drifts away and the house collapses. And yet the, fo- the, the wise man does what? The wise man builds his house upon the rock, upon God's word, upon God's covenant promises, upon God's character, upon the gospel. And when the storm comes, what happens? That house stands firm. David's saying, my feet are firmly planted on God's covenant promises to me. On his character. And so I am confident that I will stand. That is his persuasion. The wicked will be cut down. I will endure and persevere by grace. I will run until the end. What else is his persuasion though? Look at the very last half of verse 12. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. David's confident that he'll do what? Lord, because you're going to vindicate me, Because you will be faithful to your covenant promises, I'm confident I will stand in the assembly and I will, in corporate worship, give praise and thanks to you. Brothers and sisters, why is that an appropriate response? There are many reasons we could give, but let me give you two quick reasons why that's an appropriate response to what God does in our lives. First of all, because God gets the glory then. Not us. God gets the glory, which is Absolutely appropriate because he's the one that has done it in our lives. And so we give ourselves to worshiping of him because he is worthy of that worship and he is to be glorified in our lives. Second of all, and John Calvin touches on this in his commentary on Psalm 26, he says, The second reason is it is highly necessary that everyone should publicly celebrate his experience of the grace of God. Why? As an example of others to confide in Him, in the Lord. I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I'm very encouraged when I'm with other Christians. And they talk about the evidences of grace in God's, evidence of God's grace in their lives. Because I listen and I go, Lord, look at how good you are. Behold your faithfulness. And my soul is encouraged. To likewise confide and trust in the Lord more and more and more. And so we should be given to doing that in corporate worship and with one another. And by the way, if I might add, this is why we should share our testimonies with unbelievers. Not, Don't get confused. Your testimony is not the gospel. So don't share your testimony and say, oh, I've been sharing the gospel with people. No, your testimony is not the gospel. Share the gospel with them, but then tell them how the Lord has saved you. Do share your testimony with them. Why? Because I think that's a great persuasion for them to trust in the grace and mercy of the Lord as well. Isn't that what Paul says? I've been saved, the chief of sinners, that the mercy of God might be made manifest. And so we should absolutely do that when we're sharing the gospel with others. But what are we seeing here? We're seeing that David's persuasion is that God will... Cut down the wicked, and that cutting down of the wicked, they're being swept away, will be the salvation of God's people. And that's not a new concept, is it? Just think of salvation history up to this point. What happens in the flood? Noah's family is put in an ark and saved, and what happens to all the wicked of the earth? They're wiped out in a massive flood. Their destruction is the salvation of God's people. Think about when God's people are brought out of captivity in Egypt. Think of that 10th plague, right? The Israelites knew because God revealed it to them. Put the blood of the Passover lamb over your door and the angel of death will pass over it. But for the Israelites or Egyptians who did not, what happened to their firstborn sons? They were killed by the angel of death and the destruction of God's enemies and his people's enemies ended up being their salvation, the salvation of God's people. Why? Because then they were let go by Pharaoh. Or think about the Red Sea. God parts the waters so they can walk through as on dry land. God's people can walk through on dry land. When the Egyptians in pursuit, wanting to kill the Israelites, come, what happens? The waters come down and destroy them. The sweeping away of God's enemies is the salvation of his people. And so we are to be persuaded of this, brothers and sisters. But here's the question that I want to answer How can we have this persuasion when in and of ourselves we know that we are wicked and evil? How can we have the persuasion that we won't be swept away with our enemies since we have no righteousness of our own to justify us before God? Brothers and sisters, I hope you already are filling in the blanks here. It's because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came and was swept away as if he was wicked. Swept away as if he lived our wicked life, he did that as our substitute as our sacrificial lamb. Why, so that we could be set free, and so that jesus 's righteousness could then be counted as our own. that is our confidence, not our righteousness, but his righteousness on our behalf and the way that he and the way that he paid the penalty in full on the cross, but brothers and sisters as we close I'd be amiss and pastorally I can't do this I can't end the sermon without applying what we've learned from this psalm to the greatest accusation that any of us will ever face and I just hinted at it a little while ago the greatest false accusation that we will ever face we will receive from the hands of the one in scripture who is called the accuser Satan himself And what's the false accusation? Satan loves to come to God's children and try to convince them, you don't really belong to him. Do you know your past? There's no way you're one of God's children. You wouldn't have acted to your family the way you did this morning if you were one of God's children. And so Satan comes into our ear and just like he did in the garden, drips those lies in. And here's the thing, we are sinners, aren't we? And so that false accusation actually seems real to us. Well, I am sinful, so maybe I I don't actually belong to God. And brothers and sisters, when the tempter comes, when the accuser comes and whispers those lies into your ear, like the snake that he is, we are to give voice to our plea. We are to go before the judge of all mankind, our gracious heavenly Father, and say, "Listen, the accuser is not the judge." My father is the judge. And he's already pronounced the verdict not guilty. But instead, my child on my only begotten son's account. And for his sake, because of what he did in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so that is the plea we bring before the father. And that we use to to push back Satan. And we give voice to our purity. Our purity is not our integrity ultimately. Our purity is Christ's righteousness accounted as our own so that God now treats us as if we had lived Jesus's perfect life. And so we're to give voice to that. We're also to give voice to our place. We are to say, I don't belong with the assembly of the wicked as a fruit of the root of my faith. I love God's people. I love the one who has saved me, the Lord. I love the place where his glory dwells. And so, Lord, there's evidence that I belong to you, that you're doing this work of grace in me. And so since all of this is true, we then give voice to our persuasion. Lord, one day you will fully and finally cut down, cut out his legs from underneath him, our accuser, Satan, and all those who would follow him, and they will be cast into hell. And yet, until that happens, we will persevere. We will endure because, Lord, you are keeping us. You are holding us, and you will not let us go. And so when the enemy rages, brothers and sisters, let us cry out in prayer before the Lord. This is our great privilege to come before the one who judges justly and know that he's not only just, but by his grace, he is our justifier. And so let us entrust ourselves to him. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so thankful for the comforts of your word. It's amazing how we can miss them until we see your son and his life and his ministry so clearly. And so we're thankful for the gift of the son. We're thankful for the privilege of this psalm being passed down from David to Israel, to Christ, and now to us. And we're thankful for the access that we have to you in prayer at all, Father, because we stand in Christ. So we pray that as accusations come our way that we would cry out to you in prayer and that we would do battle with the accuser who brings this great accusation against us. And Lord, use your word to comfort the weak consciences of your people and the strong consciences of your people. Apply your word to each one as you see fit. We know that you will. And so we thank you in advance. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.